G'day, Jared McKenna here. Decolonizing Sunday School is in full effect and so is Subversive Seminary and it's wonderful uh, joining many of you week in, week out in those spaces. But Drew, talk to us a little about what's happening on the podcast this next little while. Yeah, these next few episodes, we're going to do something just a little bit different. Instead of uh, uh, bringing out some fresh content, um, which it will be coming soon, we've got some favorites in terms of what... Uh, me and Jared have found really helpful out of the podcast, but we're also going to include some of the most listened to episodes from the podcast as well. And so I think you all are going to appreciate these next few episodes. So we'd love to hear from you uh, what your favorites ha have been. And in the meantime, join us uh, live each week for our interviews as they happen and uh, more to come. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Jared. You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse. Well, Ben, in terms of ways of intros, um, uh, you're an activist, clearly. Uh, you're a playwright. Um, uh, you're a brilliant mind. You're a regular contributor um, to the Guardian. And uh, for for those who are interested, um, if you Google uh, or even YouTube Christianity and socialism, Jordan Peterson having a go at you is one of the first things that pops up. And in fact, I, I think what I searched was uh, Christianity and Marxism. Um, and I was surprised that Peterson was the first thing that popped up, clicked on the, the link, and he mentions your name within the first 30 seconds. So this is going to be a fun conversation because Drew and I are often accused of being Marxist to a point where I, I feel sorry for um, my friends who are Marxists that they constantly get associated with my uh, Anabaptist, enemy-loving um, uh, non-violent ways, which not all of my Marxist friends are down with. <laughs> uh, it, it's an odd thing, but it, it is um, an inherent, it's an inherent tenet of Marxism to have problems with other Marxists. In fact, Karl Marx famously <laughs> said, one thing is for certain, I am no Marxist. I, I am not a Marxist, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and um, and the, the nature of, of uh, it's interesting because there's so much cultural debate that goes on in um within Marxist discourse about, about who gets to be Marxist and who doesn't, which has to do with a really complex um, sort of psychosocial association of, of politics with privilege and with guilt, that mm. I think there is a huge tendency in Marxist communities to, to perform purity um, almost. It, it's, it's quite an act of self-consciousness around having to subscribe to what's interpreted as a doctrinaire Marxist identity in order to feel entitled to actually speak about Marxism, because you do have a lot of people who come into con who come into contact with Marxism through university, which in its in the West, which in itself is a very privileged experience, mm. and those people I think bear a lot of self consciousness around that and and perform this kind of zealotry, uh, which is always very amusing when you're the kind of Marxist who, you know, reads Marx and you know, studies the rights around. <laughs> 
Marxism that Marx himself participated in. And it becomes very clear he had literally no time for these people either, um, which is one of the many, many hilarious jokes that you can find in in the pages of Marxism when you get into it, as I have. And I've got to say from the outset, I am very comfortable talking about Marxism. But as important to me as my Marxism is, is my religion. So Mm. I was raised more of a cultural Roman Catholic than I was as a practicing Roman Catholic, even though I went through, I was baptized, went through reconciliation and confirmation and Holy communion. I didn't make it to confirmation Mm. uh, because even though I was very young at that point, I was asking spiritual questions that I wasn't immediately receiving answers to. And certainly my family believed that. So I'm from um, an immigrant Irish family that, came to Australia because of religious persecution. And Mm. my mother's grandfather was a Roman Catholic who had married a Protestant and they had to literally move to the other side of the world. And in my family, the way that they reconciled the the religious Dan, can can I interrupt to ask, do you know whereabouts on the Emerald Isle your your family's from? Um, We're from Tralee, which is in Mm. Kerry, and it's Irish speaking. So when my family came out here, they couldn't speak English. They spoke Irish. Yeah. So they, um, the way that they reconciled it was that they baptised as many children as they had, they baptised them um, Catholic, then Protestant, then Catholic, then Protestant. So it, wow. Yeah, which was really interesting that you had different congregations in one family, different sort of alignments. But it also meant that in my family that we were quite sensitive to the notion of religious division, even though culturally we were absolutely Irish Catholics. Mm. Um, and my mother was from, uh, her mother had been baptised Catholic, so my mother went to Catholic school as did her brothers. And um, and my mother was educated at, uh, through um, an Our Lady of the Sacred Heart um, school. So my mother, her uh, religious experience came through Um, an awareness of liberation theology and that had an enormous moral impact on me at the same time that when I started asking questions my mother um, was very open to that and was like you have to find your own path like the history of our family is about a a need for finding your own spiritual path and we're not going to align you or coerce you into any particular direction if you don't want to go to church you don't have to go to church and uh, certainly that was, I sort of existed in an, as, a, as an agnostic with very strong Catholic moral principles. Mm. But as I got older, I reached a position that the question that I'd always had, which was, is faith logical? The answer became a resounding yes. So mm. I reached a point where as a rational person, I could not rationalise that uh that a carbon-based bipedal life form on one planet in quite a distant non-central galaxy was the only sentient force in the universe. And then if we were sentient, therefore the universe was. And that to me was a logical explanation for the existence of God. And then I was done. Then I was right. Then it was the question had been answered (laughs) and I was fixed. Um, At the same time, I was going through just a lot of, a lot of, like a lot of inward change and had dealt with a lot of, adult tragedy and found myself in sort of existential despair and had a moment where I decided that I would go to church and I was living in London at the time and I went to Westminster Cathedral 
not Winston, not Westminster Abbey. That's the other one. I went to Westminster yeah, Cathedral. Right. I went there for <laughs> vespers, and I, I, yeah, I just had a moment, and I knew I was in the right place, and I was hearing the right words, and I, and all of these sort of promptings towards faith and identity, and specifically religious identity, as a as a progressive Roman Catholic, just coalesced just in that moment. Mm. And it's quite pro- it's problematic to be particularly a feminist and a person who supports, um, obviously, concepts like marriage equality um, and also thinks that the abuse of children is wrong. Um, that's very... That, that means that you bring a critique to institutional Catholicism, um, yeah. as you have to. And where I live in Australia, um, I'm not entirely convinced that... Um, that the, the principles of equality and fairness and safety and protection are necessarily represented by um, the politics of my local diocese. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I participated in a non-denominational um, faith, faith group um, and with people from all kinds of different religions because I, I feel a need to be part of a spiritual community, but I can't, I can't put money in in a bowl um, in a specific building that has at any point um, thought that child abuse was something that we could like minimise. So it's yeah. quite a complex position because I'm absolutely I, like I I understand my inheritance as a Roman Catholic completely, but at the same time, like I that inheritance is about a social justice mission of the Catholic Church and is absolutely mm. about moral praxis. And that means that I just can't, I, I can't sit in a specific space and go, yeah, let's just ignore what happened to those children. I can't do it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Ben, and I, I, think, I, I think a lot of Australian Catholics are in that space, to be fair. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Ben, uh, I mean this as the greatest compliment. Um, on the wall behind me, there are at least four pictures of Dorothy Day. She's one of my biggest influences and the, the Catholic Worker Movement um, uh, has has been one of the biggest things that has shaped me. And when I think of friends who might approximate Dorothy Day, uh, and particularly you as a, a playwright, um, you are probably the only person who comes to mind, both in uh, your your intellectual rigour, um, uh, your, your moral courage, this sheer determinism in the face of the horrific backlash um, uh, or backlash implies that it's in response to something, but just what you experience online and the amount of hatred and, and all the rest, the, the way that you write, um, your clarity of moral conviction, um, uh, your ability to do the argy-bargy and still seem healthy, uh, are all things I'm just like in awe of. So in a reality when um, Drew and I are so often at the moment called Marxist, um, I wanted to introduce people to um, somebody who, who truly is a Marxist. I really <laughs> am. I'm 100% a Marxist. And um, it's funny that you mentioned that that discussion with Jordan Peterson, which was just hilarious because it becomes very clear, very immediately, that Jordan Peterson has not read a word of Marx or the Holy Bible. <laughs> and where he yeah. gives that answer where he goes, oh, uh, I, I don't know if I, I can believe that God exists, but I act as if God exists. And I'm just like, is anybody seriously buying this? Are you crazy? Yeah. And then I have Alex Hawke next to me going, oh, you can't, 
you can't be a Christian and a Marxist. And I'm like, why not? And he can't actually give me an answer. And I was trying to say the microphone was not, I was like, and when was the last time you actually went to church, Alex? Like how much is this, have you read the book? Because the book gives you a lot of indications about what is moral and correct behaviour. And I don't see you doing a lot of it, Alex. Like I wouldn't actually (laughs) describe your performance as a politician in the government of Australia as, as being particularly consistent with the very obvious moral instruction about how to be good in a bad society, you know, which by the way, also runs through Brecht. So, you know, the big influences on my life, which are Karl Marx, um, Catholicism and Brecht all say the same thing. Like the challenge is being good in a bad society and finding a way to do that. And the way that I can, um, I mean, it's not easy getting absolutely horrendously harassed and abused on the internet all day, every day, which is my life now. But yeah. obviously, I draw strength from the moral convictions that have that I have had that have been informed in me culturally by communities, and mm. it's the notion of community that that makes you strong, and the mm. notion of um, the notion that that you are you are not alone in the universe, that your life does not amount to uh, your life does not amount to what other people inflict upon it, but an mm. absolute sense of of purpose and meaning and contribution and a contribution that's made and given collectively. And certainly when I read the Bible and I'm nervous about doing this interview because my religious beliefs are something I do not talk about generally. Like I I admit that I have them. I am not ashamed um, to be a religious person in the way that, you know, I have seen people in various progressive and left communities not want to talk about it or be worried of criticism for that because they're absolutely integral to how I live my life. And I do try and I do try to live to intensely spiritual principles around honesty and observance and deference and respect and faith and self-sacrifice and all of those things. Um, but at the same time, it's like I know a lot more about Marxism than I do about theology. Like, you know, I'm, I am more than happy to not be the smartest person in the room when it comes to theology in the way that I'm not happy to not be the smartest person in the room when it comes to Marxism because that's where I do most of my fighting. So, yeah. I'm on it. Like, but, um, well, but it is. Uh, that's it's a really intimidating pivot. to talk about it. And when you were like, pick a favourite Bible passage, I was like, I don't know if I can even remember the order the chapters go in and was having this like, massive freak out. I loved how um, how many passages uh, uh, you half chose before deciding on, but you, you did choose a particular passage. Um, what, what passage are, are we going to explore together today, Van? We're going to talk about Luke 3 because it contains John the Baptist, who I'm into. Like, I'm massively into John the Baptist because he's the <laughs> wild man of the Bible and he's just doing it. And I read this beautiful, beautiful commentary that said, yeah, he's pretty weird. Like he's out there and God works through weird people and John the Baptist is that guy. And Man. also because it's just so simple and it sets up a framework for understanding just what the the material, the, the material moral instruction of the Gospels is and yeah. what that, that means. And I thought we could use that as a discussion for looking at, you know, a lot of the a lot of the misinterpretation of Marx on religion as well, which mm-hmm. deserves to be talked about because yeah. the, there's not an inherent hostility. Like to me, you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And that conversation between the material and the spiritual is actually what makes you a moral person or 
gives you the capacity to strive towards a moralism, which is, of mm. course, not inherent to us and something that we have to work for. <laughs> I, I can hear Hegel already. I can hear that yeah. dialectic happening. It's, uh, would you feel comfortable reading uh, a, a section from this pa- or would you like us to read it? Or, oh, no, no, I, I'll do it. Here we go. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturae and of the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, the tetrarch of uh, <clears throat> Abilene, and I'm already panicking. Annas and Caliphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of words of Esaias, the prophet, saying, the word of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptised of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptised and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptise you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptise you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, and then he shut up John in prison. Mm. All right, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. But before we get into the text, one of the things that we want to do, um, we like to explore um, your own story um, as it relates to scripture. And so I'm kind of curious about when do you remember first encountering the Bible? Well, I obviously had to uh, read the Bible in order to go through Holy Communion and uh, to go through Holy Communion. And it's such such a weird experience. You're like 10 and, you know, sitting with the priest talking about your sins and your sins are 10. So, you know, when you become an adult, you realise that this is probably the best hour of the priest's day, hearing the sins of a 10-year-old. But because I come from such a large, um, it's not only that my, my immediate family are Irish Catholics, but my cousins are Polish Catholics. So there are bazillions of them. So obviously um, Catholic uh, um, baptisms, deaths and marriages is 
uh, is how I experienced the Bible in the form of Catholic mass around ritual. So we were very infrequent church goers. And then in terms of instruction, it was through the, the process of reconciliation and Holy Communion that I sat down with the Bible and did the work that I, I had to do as a little kid in order to be um, accepted into the church. And then, of course, I my relationship with the Bible as I was going through sort of my period of doubt was very much on an intellectual and theoretical basis. And I did, I mean, it's so interesting looking back going, it was always there. Like it was always, even when I was questioning, there was a fundamental sense of conviction that these, these were the words of my faith, the language of my faith and the framework of what would be my religious understanding because I read a lot about the Bible and I was particularly interested in looking at um, the stories of women in the Bible but uh, so but came at it a very different way when I accepted when my my heart opened to my faith um, I started turning to the Bible when I, I I needed guidance and I needed to think and I needed a place to wrangle with philosophical questions and sometimes just personal and, and um, psychological questions because certainly what I came to understand uh, through being part of a faith community again was the need was the need to be guided through the guided through the the promptings of the conscience and to have a language for understanding what insight would be so my bible reading is like all over the shop it's literally pick up the book have a read remember something i've written i've read before and go back to it search think read commentary but it's very it's very piecemeal like my just because of where i've had to find myself in terms of religious community and that's why i get really intimidated and think oh you know i'm gonna get the words wrong i'm not gonna pass the test no but certainly it's um it is really it's it is really interesting for me that I can always I can always find a path through whatever the the wilderness is by just sitting down with the Bible and having to think and being reconnected not only not only to you know the the notion of of a God who loves me unconditionally but also to a community of people throughout thousands of years who have also received that love and I, I feel so included and that my questions and my struggles are not individual questions and struggles, they're collective ones. And that the, the community of everyone who has shared in the faith is in the book. And whenever I feel alone, I'm, I'm connected with that community whenever mm. I read my Bible. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. I'm, I'm so aware. Um, uh, so my dad migrated, to Australia in 1972 and um, my experience uh, though uh, I was never baptized Catholic uh, was the same as yours in terms of it was so dad's seven brothers and four sisters all migrated just prior to him and uh, so uh, I've massive family on the McKenna side um, all here in Perth uh, they intended to go over east but got off uh, the, the boat in Fremantle and were like this is all right we'll stay here but those experiences of um uh, you know, christenings, um, funerals, um, uh, last rites uh, where someone's dying, those experiences where the Bible wasn't so much something that um, was me and the Bible as it was us and the Bible. It was something that was read over you. Um, Father Richard Raw, when we had him on the show, shared about um, he didn't really uh, 
know the Bible for himself until he went to seminary. So he, he had a, a sense of call, but um, uh, for so many people who uh, grew up in outside of the charismatic um, Catholic um, formation, uh, scriptures is something that's heard um, in a larger sense that it washes over you as a part of uh, the rhythms of a community that are seeking to be faithful. Uh, it's really funny that, you should say that because the joke in my family, so my father was raised Presbyterian and, <laughs> and had, had, had a fear of God, understanding of religion, like had literally right, yeah. had a fear of God put in him as a small child. And because he was from outside the Catholic cultural community, he paid really strict attention in services and it was this joke that my father knew the words of all of the services better than anyone else did because he felt like obliged to listen and get it right and um yeah and so my mother would you know make all these hilarious jokes about so what comes after that john what's the next bit you know yeah. like. <laughs> so um it, in both uh that personal journey and that collective experience did you experience the Bible as something that was um, oppressive or liberating? Uh, liberating. Or, or did you? Yeah. Oh, totally liberating. And I mean, and that's why, you know, my, my community, my spiritual community is, um, is liberation theology, Catholic liberation mm. theology just absolutely speaks to me. And that's where I belong. And that's my language because I constantly see the exhortation to, the liberation from oppression in the Bible, not only personal um, and the idea that you must take it upon yourself to lead a moral life and you must take it upon yourself to just grasp faith. And if you grasp faith, you are free. You are genuinely free. Hmm. But at the same time, that comes with an, an inherent responsibility to to share that liberation and freedom with other people through acts of service. And, and constantly the Bible keeps talking about service and we are servants and we're not, there's there's a line about we're not we're not servants who take profit in service. Like mm. this is the point. And again and again the message is of of the collective, of the of the community, of the shared faith, you know, that we are all that we are that we are one in this and that we are one in our faith and our belief and for me that's really liberating the idea that these you know individual there's a, one of my favorite words is the word insist and mm. it means literally to be covered in cysts to the point where you're, you're calcified by garbage you mm. know this idea of insisting and the fact that we accumulate these you know petty nonsenses and 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 sin and greed and envy all these things sort of attached to us and the way that we are liberated from that sort of personal sense of insistment is through a community of faith that that jesus offers us the opportunity to 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 no longer be these sort of encumbered individuals but to be this just liberated humanity and i read that in every page like this is how to be free. This is how this is how we build strength, and this is how we we lose, you know, this our individual nonsenses. And and so much to me is also about the fact that I know you've talked to Tom Ballard about um, the Council of Perfection and the notion that mm. if you want to be perfect, like get rid of all this material stuff, like just fo follow me, just drop yeah. it, leave it alone, walk away. 
And again and again, it's this notion that these sort of like individualistic impulses are the things that actually keep you from happiness and they keep you from your community and they keep you from your God and they keep you from being good. So that's what I, I consistently read. And not to mention, you know, just exhortations about, about how to, how to navigate these challenges to, to the self as well. Like mm. um, I can't remember how it came up the other day, but it was, I think I was, because I suffer from um, major depressive disorder, which is boring. Like it's literally the most boring thing you can have. And the pandemic has been really hard because I'm cut yeah. off from like, I can't go to prayer group. I can't, you know, I'm trapped in my house in the middle of nowhere, me and the cows, you know. Um, and I was just like, I need, I need to think about how I, like I need a spiritual context for understanding what I'm going through. And I, mm. I opened my Bible and I sat down and it was about, character like we must persevere because perseverance is the basis of hope and it's hope actually that builds character and and this Mm. is what we have to do and it's that kind of connection to shared wisdom that I find incredibly liberating like I had a language for understanding how this is not why this is happening because you know open into question but how this is happening and what that means and what the challenge to all of us is to get through that and that's the kind of connection that I make. Like I said, it's so important to me, especially as an individual, to feel that I'm part that I'm mm. part of a, a, a massive humanity. And I and I do that when I do religious reading. Well, wow. you can tell how awkward I am to talk about it. Like, I, not I at all. So, so I feel like I've just been bamboozled because you were going and talking about you can't speak theologically and stuff, and then you've just been breaking down, just. I spend so much time in the classroom. I'm, you know, in the United States, um, I teach theology in the classroom and I spend so much time trying to help my students have a mindset about faith beyond just the hyper individualism that they're kind of stuck in and precisely trying to get them to grasp a sense of what it means to be part of community and even to be interconnected and, and related to all humanity, right? I mean, that's what you're kind of really sharing in really powerful ways. So um, I don't buy it anymore. You can't uh, hoodwink me anymore with this. I can't talk theologically. I, I'm not buying it anymore. Um, could you drop in some um, really important wisdom that I think yeah. is really important for a lot of people to hear? Yeah. But I think it's that thing, like when you're part of a faith community, you understand that it continues without you and that it, it doesn't matter who's in that room because the the community is the same, like the individuals mm-hmm. come and go. And yet the the word, the message, the sustenance, it's there. Like the the sense of the, the sense of like quite frankly, a sense of immortality and continuity. Mm-hmm. You know, that one day you won't be in that room, but that love will still be in that room. And you have mm-hmm. been part of that and it will be shared and passed on and and it's it's transformative like that's where you lose your fear you lose your fear in a room full of people who can come and go who can live and die and yet the love is eternal and that's for me that's the when I try and explain to usually like how can you believe in God and remarks it's people who are on the left and right and literally the worst people in the world and I do a lot of I have to do a lot of character work on myself to pray for them forgive them and be good because I am a human being and I'm just like, really, are we doing this again? But um, but certainly I'm like, if you, if you want to understand what we're, we're on about, that's 
that's where you go. Like you've got to be with your people yeah. and, and, and that sort of it, it's continuity and permanence and love, like in an unstable chaotic universe, it's always the same. And Van, I'll, I'll be completely off, honest. I don't trust people whose spirituality doesn't make them vulnerable. I, I don't know how you talk about like worshiping a crucified God and, and then um, uh, like move through the world. Like the only places where I've experienced more dogmatism than Christian fundamentalism is Marxism. <laughs> um, and one of the things that uh, I love about how you engage is um you do so like terry eagleton with this huge dose of humor constantly um but you take uh both your faith and your marxism seriously enough that it's not an elitist game for you you're always trying to communicate to where people are at um uh and and build bridges in understandings that this doesn't just have to be for those who are university educated so i'm i'm loving this little window into um uh, uh, though I'm surprised, like, I, I'm like, Drew, I'm like, you're more eloquent than some theologians that we've had on the show. So <laughs> um, you just, just relax some and in, <laughs> have some fun. Yeah, but it, it also took me 10 years to learn how to say Canaan properly. Like in my head, it was Canaan for years and years and years. So, you know, that kind of, it'd be like, you know, referring to Louis Althusser, who's, you know, like post-structuralist French Marxist as Louis Althusser or something. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's like you always get, oh, you know. Um, like when somebody says for cult instead of for co. And, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And I'm particularly conscious of that. Uh, Drew, I don't know if you can hear, I have a particularly banging working class accent, which it silently enrages people because, you know, I write for The Guardian. I've got this insanely, like possibly the most middle class job in the world. I've been to university and I have a university vocabulary, but I sound like a slightly aggressive waitress, which is, of course, what I was until only a couple of years ago. And you know, <laughs> the fact that I do panel shows with Jordan Peterson, and you can see people just going, why is she there and not serving the pudding? You know, kind of <laughs> like, aware of that. I tell you what, one of the best theological conversations I've had ever was I, f- I found a guy who was writing for one of the more, like more conservative Catholic journals about about the fact that Jordan Peterson is just morally bankrupt individual and has no conception of Catholic theology and yet insists he yeah. should talk about it and I wrote him a fan letter and it was like probably the first fan letter this guy ever got and I was like I'm from Australia and I just want to say I met Jordan Peterson and like he he has he's got no context for understanding what any of these things are it was just this most beautiful exchange and this other guy was like I know I know right and everybody mm. thinks he's done all this reading and he hasn't and it was it was really niche it was a really niche conversation but um, but that was that was when I felt like maybe I could talk about this stuff more. But it's it's hard. Like it is really hard, and it's hard in it's hard in a country like Australia where post-colonialism means communities immigrated to this country because of religious persecution, and there is a real aversion to talk about religion, and a lot of people are uncomfortable with it because to them it represents family histories of strife and division. And I think my family dealt with it in a really interesting way. Yeah. which is why I can be the person who I am. But I think also in terms, quite honestly, about the abuse legacies of a lot of religious, a lot of religious communities in this country. And obviously the Roman Catholic Church, like shameful cover-ups mm-hmm. of abuse, shame, genuinely shameful. But yeah. it, there have been um, investigations into abuse in other religious communities like right. across the spectrum 
And yeah. you can understand why people carry psychological scarring for being told yeah. that their pain was being inflicted in the name of God. Like it's the most yeah. perverse, evil thing yeah. I can imagine. And, and it makes a discussion like when you say, when, when I have said in public, like I, I am, I'm indivisible from my faith. Like I, I, I am connected to my understanding of myself and my universe and my political beliefs derive from my faith. Like mm. I am, I am a Marxist because I am a Catholic and because I have read the Bible. And to me, the Bible is very clear, very, very clear that greed is not on. Like greed is not okay. <laughs> That's right. Like on, on this, and this is, and this is why I love this passage. Like this is why I love John the Baptist just laying it down. Right. Like you got to share. That's it. Yeah. That's what we're doing. You know, the Messiah is coming. Get ready. Start sharing. Oh, yeah. but really? Like how? But. We're all the children of Abraham, and he's like irrelevant. Sort it out. Like <laughs> you can't just wear a badge and go. It's okay. I'm on the team. You've actually got to do the work. And and yeah. but the work is, of course, like you can transform the landscape with God. All things are possible. So mm. we can fill that ditch, and we can start today. We can turn it around today. We can make the decision today to do the right thing. And he's there's no mealy mouthed business around there. There's no, there's no run up. He's not getting the band out for there to be a couple of songs before he lays it down. <laughs> you know? And for me, it's just so clear. And the, and I've got to say the Jerry Falwell stuff this morning. I just, it's like. So Ben, I, I haven't even heard that. I, I heard you oh. like mention that as you came on. What's the Jerry Falwell stuff? This is Jerry Full Falwell Jr. I have a very yeah, close friend junior. who went to Liberty University and had oh, an wow. unbelievably hard time and was just, you know, and had, was subjected to bullying and institutional bullying because she was a bit wacky and she was a bit different. She was asking questions about her identity, which is exactly what you should do when you're a young person. And yeah. she was quite brutalised by the experience and she is no longer religious as a result mm. and has, like, left, right. has left the Christian community because what happened to her at a Christian university? Yeah. And... Um, the, and, and then it's quite possible I haven't seen any of this because Jerry Falwell Jr. blocked me on Twitter. So oh, that's a, <laughs> you know I don't think he's tweeting about it. So he oh, the story is just amazing. So um, Jerry Falwell Jr. was pledged to come out for Ted Cruz. You know, like because they're from the same evangelical community, like broadly evangelical community. Ted Cruz's father uh, was a pastor. And um, Ted Cruz had an event where Jerry Falwell was going to in, in, like endorse him for president. And then out of nowhere, Jerry Falwell Jr. It endorses Donald Trump, which is an interesting choice for a person of the Falwell clan where we're told that like everything, Donald, Donald Trump is a liar. He's a serial adulterer. He pays hush money to porn stars. Like this is not what I associate with the moral majority in America. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not in that gang, but I watch the news and I'm like, really? That guy? Turns out that, um, that so, uh, about eight years ago, the, the Mr. and Mrs. Falwell met a, a guy who was an employee of a hotel called the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami which is a very interesting hotel from people from Liberty University to stay at, given it's got quite the reputation for fun times. And, um, and this, this young man who was a pool attendant became part of their lives and they bought a hostel 
which also had a reputation as being a bit of a wild place for him to manage. And then there was a discussion about who was getting money from where and it was all a bit murky. And apparently photographs were taken and circulated to certain people and these business, it was all that you read about it. And of course, being a journalist, I understand that there are things you cannot publish for legal reasons, but certain intimations are made about just who might've had photographs of whom doing what. And of course, what's happened is Jerry Falwell Jr. came out and said that his wife had had an affair with this young man and it was something they were working through um, individually. And let's remember like Liberty University is so full on, they will not let they will not let boys visit girls in girls' dorms and they have all of these really strict behaviour. Like, you have to dress in a certain way. There are modesty rules, this whole thing. But they will let you open carry a gun. Oh, yeah. That's it. You can open carry a gun. You couldn't have interracial up. dating in the 90s, I think, right? But, but Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were it's one of those full on. institutions. Like, they're not... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. These these are not people who are really on the love train, like the no, love not train. At all. That's like, <laughs> no, they missed that train. Not, they missed it. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of shame and guilt train, but no yeah. no love. Anyway, so recently Jerry Falwell Jr. was made to step back from his role at Liberty University because this was the thing. So this whole thing happened, and then out of nowhere, the Falwells endorsed Trump, and Ted Cruz is like, I'm, I just don't understand how this has happened. Well. Um, I don't know why Jerry Falwell Jr. endorsed Trump, but I do know that there were photographs taken at some point that people from Reuters news agency have now seen involving the pool attendant and Jerry Falwell and his wife that have now come to light because of this ongoing legal dispute about who owns this hostel and who's getting paid out for whom. And Jerry Falwell Jr. is already on leave from Liberty because he posted a drunken photo of Instagram with him standing next to this young woman who apparently works for his wife and they both had their pants undone, the kind of thing that would result in an instant expulsion from Liberty University if you're a student there. And it's all blown up. And it turns out that the pool attendant has now given a statement backed by photographs that he was in a sexual relationship with Jerry Falwell Jr.'s wife and Jerry Falwell simultaneously for a number of years. And it's like, do you know, guys, that's really up to you, but the lying and the cheating and that's, that's not on. Like, that's, like, no one would care what you were doing at home that is entirely up to you, but you have made such an issue of other people's behaviour and this willingness to judge other people that... You know, like, what did you right. expect? And it's everywhere. Like, it's, and people are saying 2020 bingo card, the evangelical pool boy three-way was not what we really saw coming. You know, this is the whole... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's just, and that, yeah. And, and for me, I just find it, I'm like, how can you even be like this? Like, this is not, yeah. this is not a, a, this is not a call to, to everything, like, John the Baptist lays it down. He tells mm. you this is about sharing. It is not about running a private educational institution that polices people's sexual behaviour for enormous amounts of profit. It's not about, you know, switching your alliances over which presidential candidate will give you a bigger tax break. Like, mm. you know, if you want to be perfect, lay down these things. You will have treasure in heaven. Like, again and again, share. The love of money is the root of all evil. We, are, we must all be in this together. We must, like, sit with one another and we must be a community. We find ways of feeding one another. Like, we find ways of sharing because that's what 
unites us in, mm. in the unconditionality of God's love is the unconditionality of the love that we show to one another. Wow. Like, yeah. this isn't hard. <laughs> and yet this craziness is going on. And the, and the Trump thing just does my head in. I'm like, really? That guy? Like, yeah. what, is, what is that? You know, we are all deeply flawed. And, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to admit that, I like, you know, I sin. And I just, my sins these days are on a, a, on a different level to my sins in the past because I've grown up and as an adult, I've learned that the, the wages of sin is like pain and mess and chaos and things that can be very difficult to clear up. But mm. certainly, you know, like I, especially when people are mean to me on the internet, it, it grows in me this sort of sense of resentment and anxiety and I, and I have to engage in prayer yeah. and I have to yes. have a context for yeah. active, like muscular forgiveness yeah. because yes. it's so easy yeah. to just think, you know, kind of, yeah. and I hate that in myself. I hate that sort of sense of yeah. like anger and fury and frustration and it takes work and it takes guidance in order to negotiate that. But just the absolute flagrant investment in greed just like ruins me it ru- it genuinely ruins me it causes me like spiritual angst mm. yeah yeah you know? and the, so the lies yeah. oh the lies yeah yeah no that's right on so i'm thinking about um and I, in some ways you've probably already answered this question but like as you think about like how you read you know scripture like what do you think from your own experience kind of has created a lens for you to read and interpret scripture the way that you do. What, what, what do you think mm. you're drawing from out of your own lived experiences that shape how you come to the text itself? Um, well, well think... Van, maybe to even add to the question, um, what does being a Marxist mean that you read differently or how um, yeah. do you read differently as a Marxist? I think, you know, I think what inspires people to become Marxists of the heart as opposed to just Marxists of the intellect, because you can be a Marxist Mm. of the intellect and go, okay, capital is a critique of um, the the economic, the the material underpinnings in the modern economy. And you you can read that book as just, and this is what I find really funny, like to me, it's like, is nothing in capital is wrong. Like you may not like Marx's remedies for this problem, but this he's totally he's just explained a system it's a diagnosis that's right it's a diagnosis like this is how money is made money is made by the exploitation of the people who work for those who own the means of production that is absolutely positively true ask anybody Mm. who works who works for somebody else you know that's Mm. and and the you know massive capital accumulation affects the way that we understand politics and also obviously um affects the way that we understand religion when we look at the rise of you know, corporate religion and the way that those values of profit and accumulation are associated with certain congregations in a genuinely terrifying way. Um, But it's a, it's a diagnosis. And when somebody says, oh, when somebody can prove to me, that's not how capitalism works. Sure. I'll no longer be a Marxist, but it's been 150 years and it's still looking pretty consistent to be fair. (laughs) Like, um, but Marx's, Marx's remedy, like one of the misconceptions of Marx is that Marx is not spiritual. And this is entirely untrue. 
Marx does talk about organised religion, and certainly let's put this in the context of 19th century bourgeois conservative congregations in Germany, where he grew up and in yeah. England, where he lived in the Victorian era, where the apparatus of religion was used to enforce behaviours, not only enforce sexual and personal behaviours, but also to enforce economic behaviours. And this idea that, you know, if you had wealth, you were just being rewarded by God for being more moral, whereas if you were poor, it was on you. And that Mm. religion was used to coerce people into accepting, you know, a system of economic relations, which are fundamentally, like, fundamentally against any kind of biblical message around materialism, Mm. which is terrifying. And I think his critique, you know, that religion in the period that he's writing, is the sigh of the oppressed creature. I think that's completely true. And I think yeah. we'd be lying to the, ourselves. The heart of a heartless world. The heart of a heartless world. And he said, you know, that this this need for people to believe in a salvation after death was the only thing that sustained them because the, the day-to-day lives were so miserable. And, you know, and but in his other writing, and there's an essay from um, 1844, which I did write it down. Which one is it? Uh, Wages and Labour, I think it is, where he talks about um, that until we solve the problem of exploitation, people cannot cannot embrace spirituality freely. And mm. that the, the point of the, the revolution that he agitates for is for people to be spiritually liberated so they can pursue their spiritual calling, which you, you can't pursue a spiritual calling if you are being exploited, like working 16 hours a day, being told that everything wrong that happens to you is your fault or divinely in, like ordained. That's not a connection to God. That's a connection to the, a structure of oppression. And later Marxists, like specifically Louis Althusser, talk about um, the ideological state apparatus where a system of exploitation and oppression is one that's been negotiated by people who are more interested in power and wealth, whether they mm. are heads of religious institutions, heads of corporations, heads of government, heads of the media. Like, we we know this. Like, this is completely true. And we see those hypocrisies, those vanities, and that greed, that absolute greed play out all the time. For me, like, there was no question that I was a Marxist because I had, because part of the um, instruction that you undergo to make Holy Communion, like Catholic, like Catholic instruction for small children when I was doing it, I presume it's much the same because let's face it, that's not an institution that really takes change very quickly. Um, <laughs> like this constant procession of moral problems that it was on yeah. you as an eight-year-old to solve. Like if somebody has stolen something and they're your friend and you know they're poor, is it right or wrong to dob them in? I mean, that's a hell of a question for an eight-year-old, but you Mm. have to face it. And that's the whole point is that you have to constantly make moral decisions. So I think as a very small child, I was highly attuned to the notion of other people's suffering and that other people's suffering is my responsibility, my family's responsibility, my community's responsibility, because if they're suffering and I'm not, well, well, why? Like, why is that? And if if I'm suffering, wouldn't I want there to be a, like a community response to that? So I think a lot of my very specific political opinions were calcified around a time when I was very young 
when my father lost his job and you know my father and mother were just both white collar working class people my dad was a club manager and when he lost his job and suddenly we were plunged into the terror and uncertainty of my father's unemployment my mother had to go back to work she was casualized like it was really dicey it was a really dicey time we had no money we had all this instability my parents relationship was fracturing under all this pressure i started performing really badly at school and we were in real trouble and it happened at a time that I was able to understand the system of productive relations in quite specific terms. Yeah, that's right. And I think I read the Communist Manifesto when I was about 11 or 12 and when I get this. Wow. Like, I totally get this. <laughs> and, um, and certainly it, it explained, the like, you know, I'm the, the words that explain the wor- world are the words of God because that's... Mm. You know, that's how how this is, who we are is defined by the words we use to describe what we are. Hmm. And and certainly, like, that sense of responsibility and outrage, like, grew in me as I grew older. One of the most potent spiritual experiences I had in my life was actually the first time I went to the United States, which was in 2002. And Hmm. I was in Chicago and I was hanging out with a bunch of my Chicago friends who were just, like working class, lower middle class girls who um, who I'd met on exchange in England. And we just like lovely, ordinary girls. And we had, and I'd hooked, like hooked up with them in Chicago and we went to Hancock Tower. And the idea was that you'd go to Hancock Tower, you'd buy a cocktail in the cocktail bar and you'd get a view of Sears Tower in Chicago and beautiful. And, you know, and it's, it's the cheapest way to have sort of that experience is to buy a cocktail in the bar as opposed to buy a ticket. Anyway. And we were outside Hancock Tower and we we're in all our cute little outfits. And there was a man who was quite clearly in the, in the end stage of, um, of full-blown AIDS, whose face was covered in cup posy sarcoma, who was mm. begging for money at the bottom of Hancock Tower. And it, I just was like, I have a moral responsibility in this world to do everything I can to not this shouldn't be a thing how is this a thing how can i be surrounded by so much wealth like absolute crashing amounts of wealth and chicago is a really stunning city for an australian to visit because it's you know in the middle of nowhere really and yet these <laughs> huge towers you know massive towers of industry that represent like a wealth that was torn from the ground yeah. and yet here you had this man who was in an abject state who was maybe weeks from the end of his life, who ha- had not had the care that he fundamentally deserved as a human being. And I, and it was the contrast. Like, I think when you see a juxtaposition that's that terrifying, you can't, you cannot move on from that because you shouldn't move on from that. Mm. And all of the things that I, that I fight for are about a redress of that imbalance, that it's not, it's not okay for you, it's it's not only not okay for that to exist, but it's also not to go not okay to merely pray for that to go away. Like you've got to do the work, and the Bible wants you to do the work. The Bible mm. says, like John the Baptist says, like do the work, do it now, do it immediately, do not wait. You can start right now in doing what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the that's the call. And I'm not. I'm not an individualist and it's not like, well, if Van Batum decides that she's going to take on poverty, well, that's what we're doing. But I'm I'm part of it. And I was doing a lot of reading around um, Hillary Clinton, who, like, obviously I have critiques of because I have critiques of everybody because I'm a rational thinking human being. Um, But Hillary Clinton 
is a devout Methodist and she's all about John Wesley and do all the good that you can in all the ways that you can, anywhere that you can, anytime that you can, do it. Like, do it now. Don't don't wait. Don't stop. Just go. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's the mission. That's the calling. And so mm. I do describe myself as orthopraxic and um, mm. I... I read a lot around um, Gustavo Gutierrez, who's the Peruvian liberation yeah. theologist, yeah, yeah. who had such an impact on Catholic activism, particularly in the libera- liberationary struggles in South America. And um, I'm very inspired by Tim Kaine as well, who was Hillary Clinton's mm. running mate, who's a um, who's an impassioned, committed, orthopraxic Roman Catholic, and um, certainly somebody from a spiritual tradition that I understand that because um, the liberation theologists in Catholicism talk about how praxis is praxis is actually what teaches you um, thesis. That's that right. if, you, if you see the injustice and you are compelled to act, it's actually the action which contextualises the word for you, yes. that you will right. understand what is required of you because you're already doing it and right. that connects you in a more nuanced and deep and spiritual way to to what the Bible instructs and what the example of Christ is and what the and what immortality is. Like your immortality is connected to your fundamental humanity. That is your salvation. That's your permanence. And 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 that language really spoke to me. And I I understood that I had a role of service and and connect to that idea of like perpetual service do all the good that you can in all the ways that you can any time that you can um and it's you know it's it's hard because obviously it's a constant you know judgment exercise about am i on the right side am i doing the right thing and that's why community faith community you know community of morality a movement and obviously for me i draw enormous amounts of inspiration from the trade union movement mm. and this notion of a movement that exists in service to working people is also it's you know, i have a spiritual connection to trade unionism in that way in the mm. way that a lot of i mean even today in australia um a lot of the trade union leadership comes from a, like explicitly Catholic social justice tradition. Yes, we are right. unionists because we are Catholics because we are social justice Catholics, and this is our praxis, and this is how we do good in a bad society, and and it's this community engagement, a sense of movement, it's service, de-individualization, collectivization. You know, uh, individual responsibility for a collective responsibility is so important. Van, mm. that's that's literally my dad's story that he was a brother in a Catholic order in Ireland and then migrated to Australia and was a union organiser in mm. what was the Missos um, uh, with Sue Lyons um, uh, and is now uh, United Voice. That, that's, that's my dad's story. Um, Van, I am so aware, even in just the stories, and I was thinking as you were holding up um, uh, that particular sordid and sad story of... Um, uh, Forwell Jr. And um, that, I mean, there's mention of Herod in this text that you've chosen. And and Herod is, um, you know, he, he's the empire's man uh, doing spirituality um, to, uh, like, he, he's a dealer in the opiate of the masses. Like, this isn't anything that John the Baptist is on about, but everything that Herod's on about. And w- one of my best mates in the world, Jonathan Martin, he was actually put in jail uh, by Jerry Falwell Jr. So when you get to that last line and he locked John up in prison, I'm like, oh my goodness, because John, o, 
it's terrible. Oh, yeah. these people Jono, are wrong. Jono was, he was um, on Liberty Campus um, for a prayer meeting and worship time um, uh, to, to pray about the realities of white supremacy and um, uh, just the campus being in bed with um, the, the Trump empire and uh, police security. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how it works, Drew, but the university police, is that? So it's like yeah, private campus police. Campus, campus security, you're right, campus police. Yeah. But even how confusing that is that um, they're kind of on the campus payroll as well. Um, they they arrest it. So all, already um, with the things that you've lifted up that I'm hearing certain connections, but would you walk, work us, walk us through, and we'd love to have you back anytime, Van. This has been so rich, but I, I really do have so many questions as somebody who, um, uh, you know, for years identified as a Christian anarchist, um, started two communes, uh, uh, lived with people who were otherwise would have been homeless, people coming out of prison, teaching permaculture gardening, um, uh, uh, training people in nonviolent resistance. Like that was my life. And it was climate change for me and the real realities of climate change where I'm like, um, uh, Peter Morin and Dorothy Sorry Day. About the puppy, by the way, but. Oh, hello, sweet puppy. Not at all. What, what's your puppy's name? This is Germanicus. Germanicus. The conqueror of the tribes of the Rhine. <laughs> That's amazing. But climate change for me is one of the things that um, I realised that Kropotkin can't help me um, and that maybe the nation state um, isn't the messiah. It is a naughty boy, but even naughty boys can actually be moved in, mobilised in a way to actually face what we're facing. So as, as somebody who now identifies as a socialist but not a Marxist, I do have so many questions around... Um, uh, um, you know, particularly for Drew and I, uh, the Anabaptist tradition has been so important and uh, th that radical reformation tradition that once the Munster experiment where um, almost like proto-Marxists, they took up uh, swords against um, the, the powers that be and were obliterated. And then in the aftermath of that, they were like, actually the Sermon on the Mount is where it's at and we're committing ourselves to a radical nonviolence. Um, I would love to have you walk us around this text, um, draw out anything um, in particular. I love the practicalities. I love so much, Van, that you lifted up uh, with God, all things are possible, and it wasn't in that um, quaint, um, you know, a positive thinking uh, bookmark kind of way of self-improvement, but actually a vision for society. Like that in itself just ministered to me today. But um, I, I would love to to hear you kind of re reflect on anything in this text that you want to draw our attention to and for selfish reasons, um, the particularities of uh, um, those places where, where we might differ that I know I have so much um, to learn from you. Uh, it's interesting because I certainly identified as more of an anarchist than a socialist for um, a really long time in my adult life. Because Maybe we could have a support group for lapsed anarchists. Yeah, for lapsed anarchists. And I, I think that's quite historical. I think, and also this is another reason why my faith is really important to me politically as opposed to spiritually is because the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, China, these were, under communism, were a failure. They were authoritarian communities. Yep. They were communities that took, took the you know, 
exemplary economic and social analysis of Karl Marx and twisted it into authoritarian misery. Yeah. And I think that um, I think that we can we can read that level of oppression. There have been ostensibly Christian regimes that have been that cruel and that abusive, that have had yes. that authoritarian character. And totally. we know that Christianity is not authoritarianism; it is the opposite. Right. And in the yeah. same way, you know, Marxism is not authoritarianism; it's the opposite. When you read Marx, you understand that this is a screed of liberation. You know, it's it's a it's a cry for fairness and it's it, it's a cry for for the freedom of people from from the ex, from exploitation so people mm. can have the space for a spiritual life like that is the inherent play of marxism and that's the the it's hilarious to me because the humanism of marxism is what makes it spiritually potent to me because it speaks to what i understand christianity to be catholicism yeah. universal to be um but they were authoritarian and I think people like you and I, because of the age that we are, um, that we, our promptings towards a left-wing analysis of the world were probably more tempted to, to think of anarchist structures as a check on authoritarianism because we'd yeah. seen authoritarianism in the form of the Soviet Union and Maoist China. Um, that being said, I it, it's actually funny because all the harassment and awfulness on the internet that I've experienced has actually led me to a place where I understand I'm fundamentally a socialist and I believe in, I believe in democratic order. Like I believe that yeah. we can, we, we have to set up systems to govern ourselves because when we're not all good all the time. And uh, the reason why I say that specifically is because if you look at the internet as a self-governed community where anyone <laughs> can start their own society or their own group things can get pretty whack pretty quickly and and that without, it's a doctrine of original sin spend time yeah, on the like with, i mean some of the things i've seen go down in facebook groups like this it's yeah. brutality and you think my god like this was happening with guns that people would be dead like this is yeah. not okay and we need we need like we need a state a, a democratic state, an inclusive state, a representative state that has, like, a, that has an institutional, that, that that is an institution that we recognise as as administering us outside of ourselves, and yeah. that's a contribution we can make. It's interesting because when I was in London and I was in all kinds of financial trouble because I got trapped in London when the global financial crisis happened, and as an Australian, like, I couldn't get welfare for being unemployed and there were no jobs and it was a terrible time and it was literally I was living on beans and and favors and mm. I was in real real trouble and one of the things I did for money was I did like psychological experiments for the department wow. of cognitive neuroscience at uh, University College London and one of the uh, experiments that I was a subject in um, they gave you this is this is amazing they gave you a hundred pounds and they got you to play a card game where you were on like on a computer so it was a computerized card game and you were given the odds of, of what a likely winning hand was going to be before you played so it was all in front of you the information that you had to justify what your bet was going to be and how much money you got paid for the experiment was going to be determined by what happened to this hundred pounds you started off with so you had a direct incentive for maximizing your return in this game um what they also did was they gave all of the subjects um a shot of something before 
the experiment. So all of us were under slightly different, or, or not, um, but we didn't know that, were under slightly different chemical influences. So mm. some people had been given adrenaline and other people had been given something that was like a, more of a sedative and other people had a placebo. And the point of the experiment was that people, for whatever reason, if they're under stress or they're depressed or whatever, don't act in their own best interests. They make mistakes. They respond to provocation emotionally. They don't, even if the facts are in front of them, they'll walk away from them because it's more convenient for people to believe things that they, they and to engage magical thinking in things that they want to be true as opposed to things that they are. And that this explains like all of these crazy fluctuations that go on in markets. Like economics is not logical. There's not some inherent, you know, and it's through like years of pu- what they call public choice theory and economics and what neoliberals go on that people make rational decisions, people make rational decisions in markets, like just out the window, like because we know that's complete nonsense. And for that reason, for the fact that we are, desperately fragile and I know this as a person who suffers from the mental illness of depression I make different decisions about myself when I'm depressed than when I'm not that that institutions are really important because it, like like a faith community the organized like the the shared purpose and the shared commitment um, is is what you can drop in and out and you can be wrecked and go into that room and be carried. Or if, you know, if you're in a good mood, you should definitely, definitely participate in your faith community and share that goodness with everybody around you who needs it. And that's what those structures are for. The idea that we just are, you know, making, making decisions completely organically with no sense of, um, of agreement, of consensus, of order, of structure, I have actually found to be really dangerous. And the internet taught me that in ways that reams and reams and reams of discussions be- between Bakunin and Marx never, never did. Yeah. But yeah. I've come wow. to really appreciate that. And that, that desperate desire, will Twitter please just intervene and stop this person <laughs> from saying these things about my dead father? Like yeah, that kind goodness. of... I'm sorry, man. Yeah, well, it happened again this week. And it's I'm just so sorry. the funniest bit was somebody accused him of, oh, yeah, he was a right wing Catholic. And I was like, actually, no, he wasn't. He was raised Presbyterian. So what do you know about me? Nothing, you know, kind of thing. But um, but that that kind of stuff has really made me realise that, you know, the project is to create systems to look after all of us. You know, the state is really important. The welfare state, I think, is the greatest, you know, while the Soviet Union was just awful and an experience in authoritarianism coercion and control meanwhile in britain you had deeply religious people like nye bevan building a welfare state that could carry people and ensure people's freedom and ensure people's prosperity and he's certainly somebody who i connect with in a very powerful way Um, and that tradition of british socialists who were very spiritually committed people That's right. who saw the project of building these systems as as spiritual service. Um, I was in Manchester last year, you know, when we could still travel and the world still That's existed. Right. <laughs> Remember um, that? Yeah. Yeah. And I went to Manchester and I got to pay homage to Robert Owen, who is a massive influence on my thinking. Uh, and he was a deist and a deeply, deeply um, spiritually committed human being and he was the leader of the cooperative movement and building economic systems that 
looked after people, you know, like let's take the form of enterprise and production and let's put that in the hands of the people who work there. Let's share wealth. Let's build gardens. Let's build opportunities for people. And we do that collectively and we do that cooperatively and we become better people for our sense of service to one another. And, and that sort of, uh, that led to the, you know, a Christian socialist movement in the UK that was about that's community right. building and service and a material outcome of spiritual principle. And that's what I really connect with. Like, yeah. you know, what are we doing here? Are we just here to absolve ourselves and move move on and just absolve, you know, perform a personal self-ablution and then just indulge whatever sort of greed or, or lust or, you know, envy that we wish? Or are we actually here to show a service to the universal love provided us from the moment that we exist and and create of our lives like a, a collective enterprise of, of meaning and giving and generosity shouldn't we replicate the values of of love that we were born into well of course we should you know that's what the bible says and mm. so that's what we're doing isn't it like shouldn't we be doing that mm. You know, Marx just gives us another tool for understanding what the problems are that we're here to solve. Yeah, and then I, I can even... Dorothy Day um, reminded people that children in the neighbourhood uh, referred to Marx as Papa Marx and um, uh, that before anyone should critique him, they should remember um, his kindness, that he was so loved and referred to as, as Papa Marx. But one of the things that Papa Marx and um, uh, John the Baptizer have in common is this, this vision, this, um, you know, uh, eschatological vision of a world healed. Now, uh, we have in this passage, um, John the Baptist using the poetry of uh, Isaiah to express that every crooked road shall be made straight and valley lifted up and hill made low. Um, uh, Marx might express it as um, uh, what fishing in the morning, um, hunting in the afternoon. Uh, what's, the, what's the rest of the quote? Um, oh, it's uh, about the commitment to leisure and like the, uh, that's, that's the point. Caring for this. animals in, and, and then critiquing in, in the evening um, uh, without having to be a fisherman uh, a, a sheep herder or, or whatever the, the full quote. But it's, it's this uh, evocative um, uh, very physical, and, and I think any Christian should have a commitment to material reality um, uh, if they take seriously the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Like that should have a materialism that should m meet our Marxist friends who are atheists. That the, the commitment to the here and now, if Jesus is risen from the grave, that um, uh, that that should be just. It's in the creeds. Um, it's it's a requirement. Uh, it's one of the things that Jordan Peterson completely lacks is his Gnosticism, which uh, it, it's uh, a very Gnostic form of uh, Jungian theory that when he does use scripture, it's all about the internal psychological, that how do we provide a Band-Aid to our souls? Of, he also thinks of religion as punishment, which just to me, I just felt so sorry for him, Jared, like quite honestly, sitting on that panel, you know, like... It was this weird sort of perversion of C.S. Lewis, like conception of God wants you to suffer and, you know, you should you should live in moral fear and avenging God. And I was just like, that's not, in, yeah. that's, no. Like yeah. there's an entire testament about how it's not about that, dude. Like, yeah. catch up. <laughs> and some of us you will know? argue very passionately that um, 
uh, the first testament wasn't about that either that um, yeah yeah uh, you, you don't even course. need jesus um uh to to get to a god who's slow to anger uh, abounding in love and compassion um but i think uh, the, the isaiah quote is is important as well in talking about because in terms of Luke 3, it presages what happens in Luke 16, where ah. Jesus talks about the, um, where Jesus talks about the, the rich man who finds himself in hell and looks up to heaven and sees poor Lazarus, yeah. who was covered in sores, and is like, but you, oh, surely there's been some kind of mistake. And Jesus is like, no, like you were, to, you were told, you have been consistently told that this is, this is the deal here. You were told by Isaiah, you were told by John the Baptist, and now, well, that's the implication, and now you're being told by me, like yeah. the, the message I have come to give you. And the rich man says, well, um, you should resurrect Lazarus so he can go and tell my brothers about what will happen to them if they, and Jesus is like, no, like we have been over this. This right. is in the book, man. Like, pay attention. <laughs> right. You have everything you need already. I mean, that's yeah, kind of it's, the point. It's, right? it's all here. It's you in need. you. Right. And if yeah. one guide wasn't enough, another one is not going to cut it. And But it's again, and this is what I mean, like, I just find these guys so bizarre because it's like again and again and again. It's about the, it, also in that passage from Luke 3, is about transformation, that yeah. Jesus will like set the chaff on fire, like will create yes. a physical difference. Once Christ is here, once Christ is present and visible, the, the transformation is inevitable. And it's yeah. it's up to you. Are you going to transform into the vessel, like capable of, of, uh, of, uh, of sharing that, sharing the love that's been given to you back to the world and all humanity? Are you going to affect that transformation or are you going to be the rich man in hell going, surely we can get a poor person to do this? You know, mm. like, and that's that's the challenge and that's the choice. And I think that, that, that whole notion of transformation is really important. Like, and and as a person who, like I said, had had a moment of, of the onset of total spiritual conviction, and I, I, I really can't even, it was, you know, this, this, day of my life that seemed to last for a hundred years that sitting in that church in that space and was just totally connected. And of course, part of the Catholic service is when you say peace be with you and, all my, and also with you and we'll kiss one another, you kiss the stranger next to you and these strangers like embraced me and I was just totally broken and I knew yeah. I was changed. I knew everything was suddenly exactly the same and completely different. And I cried like a child, absolutely sobbing and knew that I was in the place where I needed to be, to be wow. part of, to be part of humanity, that basically I became a person at that moment, as opposed to a vessel of my own, you know, corrupted mm -hmm. instincts and desires. And, you know, that sense of, that sense of transformation was so overwhelming, so completely, it, it does make all things possible when you realise that it's there, isn't that, not being a Protestant, I'm not totally up with my Martin Luther, but isn't that the thing that he realised that that faith was just in front of him and all he needed to do was touch it like it was it was apparent. And and that's what and that's another reason why yeah. that passage really speaks to me. Like, you know, the the there is an unquenchable a unquenchable fire and either it'll happen externally or internally and nothing will ever be the same. You know, the material nature of how we live is transformed by that awareness because we change our material lives when we take on that responsibility 
when we yeah. disavow greed. Like yeah. we we make our lives look different. And um, yeah. God, it's ben, so weird. I'm so talk weird. About as, this. It's so weird to talk about it out loud. No, and this is why I'm so excited. And Drew, I know it's very late f- for yeah. you. So um, uh, you feel free to bow when, whenever. And Van, if you need to go. But I honestly just have so many questions that I'm so keen um, uh, because I, I'm in this moment, as so many people are, where um, like I picked up and I hadn't read it for probably a decade. Um, uh, why Marx was right by Terry Eagleton, and I love Eagleton because he's he's funny. Funny, because yeah. I initially read him in art school. His book um, Reason, Faith, and Revolution, or Faith, Reason, and Revolution, whatever order the title. I still think it's it's uh, one of the most brilliant texts on the heartbeat of Christianity um, uh, from from somebody who um, self describes as a um, Trotskyite um, who who never evolved past. Uh, um, his university days, uh, unlike his friend um, Hitch. Um, but uh, so many people are asking different questions in this moment. And I'm so aware that my, my fierce commitment to um, uh, the nonviolence of Jesus uh, has often been prioritised for me over a fierce commi- commitment to Jesus's jubilee economics, uh, a radical economics where, and, and that's not to... Um, anybody who knows anything how I've lived my adult life, uh, I've lived and I have shared in common with, and I've got nothing to show for it other than uh, some great stories. Uh, Our huge need for a new imagination where so much of our Christianity um, during this moment is Herodian. Um, It it serves, it's like the Sadducees. There's no belief in resurrection. There's no hope for a time when all flesh shall see together liberation uh, or or that all humanity shall see salvation, depending on your, your translation. Uh, But people are hungry uh, for that. And there's such sadness for me then as somebody who feels um, uh, uh, called to minister, that so many of us are caught in uh, forms of Christianity, which, um, uh, throw Marxism around as if it's um, a swear word. Uh, uh, socialism is the other S word and um, uh, have very little engagement or uncrit- uncritically adopt in such ways that um, uh, it, it maybe goes as far as John the Baptist, but not further. Um, so, and I mean, to go as far as John the Baptist is a great way to start and it does prepare um, a way, but w- what is it to actually... John has this interesting, um, in the Synoptic Gospels, this moment where he's like, is Jesus the dude? Because he's not, he's not taking up the sword. Um, yes, there's Jubilee economics that are happening and all the rest. Um, and yes, he's inviting publicans or tax collectors to be a part of the program as well as zealots. But like, where's the action time? And it's when he's in prison and Jesus has to tell John's disciples, hey, go tell John that, um, uh, that the, the lame are healed that, um, uh, that they're, they're walking, that the blind are seeing, that uh, this is actually breaking out. In terms of that dialectic, that kind of names your reality, that you push back against Peterson saying um, uh, Marxism and Christianity is something that um, uh, those two things shape you in, in conversation. Where is the place for... Um, 
uh, enemy love in a conversation with Papa Marx? Oh, where is the place for enemy love? Well, I think, I mean, uh, if you look at Gramsci or uh, Marcuse, mm. who are mm-hmm. two of my favourite Marxist theorists. So um, Gramsci talks about um, hegemony and the way that the values of the capitalist system become entrenched in everything because capitalism teaches behaviour and behaviour yeah. creates culture. So we yeah. build a culture around how we behave. So if you want to change culture, you have to change behaviour and that's, you know, that's a, that's a tricky prospect in a material reality that's dominated by transactions. You know, yeah. obviously they all predicted, Marx predicted this, Gramsci predicted this, Marcuse predicted this, that when we become totally dominated in our behaviour by exchanges, that's what humanity will amount to. They will be our values. And Marcuse is really interesting because he was from the Frankfurt School whose, um, whose work was to merge Marxism and psychoanalysis, where they were like, it's not just about totalising systems and the way that Gramsci talks about how all of the systems start to influence one another. Under capitalism, everything becomes capitalist system yeah. and operates on those principles. Marcuse went further and went, we start to believe that this is normal and real and we internalise the values of self-hate, exploitation, like why do the masses who are exploited not rise up? Because internally mm. they've bought the logic of their own servitude to those systems because it's been ingrained in them. And, I mean, I think this is why muscular Christianity is so important because it's about... It's about, the, it's about the liberating challenge of love and accepting love and accepting that love yeah. is not only, is not only a, a grace, like it's also a, it's a responsibility. Like mm-hmm. and the place for enemy love is everywhere at all times, all the time. And to recognise that individuals, communities, people, people who do bad things exist in bad systems, systems that have... have been created around them by millions of micro agreements and transactions and um, and material decisions that sometimes were considered benign, but which like the exploitation of the environment was considered benign. Like mm. we came to we came to a place, we cut down trees, we built buildings, we exploited the resources around us, not because we were evil and hated the trees, but because we thought that that was how we protected ourselves and created a shelter for ourselves. And we have to reassess that obviously reassess that behaviour all the time. But the role for enemy love is to understand the way that systems create individuals and the way that somebody like Trump, for example, I mean, if you read the book by his sister, which is about his upbringing, you understand why he is the way he is, you know, and you can understand why his, you can in some ways understand why his father was the way he was. And this is before we get into psychoanalytic discussions of, you know, narcissism or dark triads or anything else, Mm. that there are people who, because of their situations, develop values and behaviours that are informed by the systems around them. And that's why it's such a, it's a, the commitment is a totalising project. And what I was saying before about, you know, how can you be a Christian and a Marxist? It's it's really important to me that, that my faith is a check on, the authoritarian impulses of um, political systems, mm-hmm. that one of the ways that we know that um, the Soviet experiment was doomed was because they mandated atheism and they oppressed people on the basis of their faith. And that yeah. you can't do that. Like you you cannot run a, a society that's capable of speaking to its most important values if you prohibit or mandate, a st- if you prohibit religion at all or mandate a state religion. Like you, mm-hmm. that's not... That's not okay. Um, you know, with some of my Christian friends, like I'm a devout secularist because in terms of public institutions, because I think 
of, you know, my family's background at a time where a different religious organisation had That's control right. of those organisations. And for me, um, secular institutions, uh, they protect my religious freedom because I am not excluded from institutions on the basis of my religious belief. And that to me is really important. And that's, you know, that's a complicated and a nuanced conversation about the reality of living in a multiculture as well. And how do we accommodate everybody? But certainly that's, it's really important to me to look at those examples. It's funny because in the room where I am now, we have all of these, um, you know, posters and things i have a a a papal plate and all kinds of things in this room i'll send you a picture but we have a big picture of karl marx which i got in a flea market in geelong for 50 bucks and (laughs) they and i was buying it and they said you know we've got lenin and mao and if you also buy lenin you can have mao for free so we did get it free (laughs) but we keep the poster of the the mao poster is quite artistic when hardly maoists but we keep the the poster of lenin next to the one of marx because marx to us is the example and lenin is the mistake and that's leninism and this notion of the vanguard and we will make decisions yeah. for you and you peasant couldn't possibly understand you know religion's just a coercive system that threatens bolshevism so we're out like we're repressing it like that's not on and that's not okay and it's been constantly reminded of that of the way that these systems have to must for the sense of the material and spiritual soul they 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 must speak to one another that dialectic must be ongoing um and that's, you know, and that's a, you know, that's a challenge that's important, but it's a check. It's a check on excess and it's a check on authoritarianism at all times. What would Marx do? What would Jesus do? Constantly that conversation. And overwhelmingly, in my reading, they would do the same thing because Marx, as a, as a, a, as a theoretician, was overwhelmed with a love of humanity. You know, absolutely the project of liberation was integral and inherent to everything he was trying to do to set people free for their lives to not be made of pain or suffering for you know everyone born to have the opportunity to live as opposed to merely work you know and that's the same call that we deserve that you know we're not here to to be miserable like there's you know a god of unlimited love isn't isn't here to just inflict us with garbage like that's that's illogical you know we are here to make our own decisions and to understand the consequences of those decisions and to work our way through them towards a better humanity always like that's that's the that's the covenant with existence as far as i understand it Mm. and max is exactly the same thing you know as does brecht sorry i'm just like i'm off on one now like i'm oh no and i love it i'm also um aware that that drew has to teach classes school goes back uh tomorrow so uni starts um and the life of a professor so um i'll be merciful um and whereas i'm going to be just show like my instinct towards sin and be like actually drew i'm off on one so i'm going to keep you up all night (laughs) (laughs) um but i thought i thought uh Maybe as, as a way of ending, I might read a paragraph f- from Marx as a prayer. How brilliant. Is that it? So if we haven't lost listeners already. We're <laughs> Jared, now, now we're definitely going to be called Marxists, right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> There's a difference between being Marxist. You know, here's, here's the thing, like, for, for Drew and I, Van, um, we're deeply influenced by um, Martin King's legacy. 
And um, Martin King said, I didn't get my inspiration from Karl Marx. I got it from a man named Jesus who said he was anointed to preach good news for the poor. That is a great preacher line, but to take King's time at Crozer seriously, he was a serious student of Marx, not Marxism. Um, and uh, almost more so than Gandhi, although he's associated with Gandhi and after his trip to India, um, mm. King uh, uh, didn't mind actually holding himself up as the American kind of, and, and put a photo up at their dinner table um, that was famously recorded um, at, at the time. Um, uh, but, but King's reading of Marx and some of his ser sermons when he was still at um, uh, um, Dexter Street Baptist Church and his pushback against communism is actually a, he self-described as a Christian socialist, but not a Marxist. And Cornel West does the same. And um, I, I do the same uh, with strong uh, anarchist uh, leanings um, and with an emphasis on Nonviolence that will always accuse me of um, a bourgeois um, uh, pers perspective and um, telling poor people how to respond. But I I'm happy to, it it's just um, uh, to talk of the cross, I think, is to talk about an aggressive nonviolence. Um, uh, but, but King's influence um, uh, and conversation with Marx, I think, is undervalued, as is Marx's own both Jewish and Christian formation, not Judeo-Christian as that political term that gets used to talk about really Western values. And usually Western values is just code for capitalism, <laughs> uh, colonialism. Yeah, um, and authoritarian, the authoritarian nature of capitalism as well. <laughs> that's right, which, I mean, if um, to say nothing about the failure of Mao is to say um, the, the failure of what China is now, an authoritarian capitalist society, um, that authoritarianism um, needs to be fought on every front. Every um, front. Uh, and King's insistence that the word democratic be uh, um, not detached from socialist is equally important for his Christian oh, take. Yeah, there is no socialism without democracy. Like, that's the whole point. Like, that should have been the dead giveaway, you know, in the whole failed Soviet experiment. If there are, if yeah. there are no elections, this is not what's going on. I, not to mention... Uh, it's a discussion for another time about share, how social um, democracy is the revolution, but yeah. Yeah. You, you can't share the goods of the masses when the masses have no goods. I mean, that, that's like um, Stalin is not just a, a, a brutal genocidal murderer of his own people um, who, who eliminated um, uh, the best and brightest um, of, of his own people. Um, he's also a fool in thinking that you could just fast track um, a, a process and enforce it upon others like it oh anyway a, a conversation for another time on that fan we'd love mm. you back anytime you want because um uh, we'd, we'd love to uh explore this more but here's a little bit of marx's own formation this comes from him i think he was 16 years old when he wrote this therefore union with christ bestows inner exaltation consolation in suffering calm assurance, and a heart which is open to love of all of humanity, to all that is noble, to all that is great, not out of ambition, not through a desire for fame, but only because of Christ. Therefore, union with Christ bestows a joy to derive from frivolous philosophy 
or the deeper thinking of the most hidden depths of knowledge, a joy known only by the ingenious childlike mind, which is linked with Christ through him with God, a joy which makes life higher and more beautiful. Van, thank you for the way that you make life higher and more beautiful. Thanks for your work and witness. Um, uh, thanks for uh, allowing your vulnerability to be on show. Um, uh, I'm deeply thankful for those tensions that you hold and your love for people with their back against the wall. Thank you. Oh, bless you, Jared. Bless you too, Drew. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.